0: Here on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, you can find all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. So we already have 27 events booked from now until February, consisting of a variety of different events, parish missions, talks, etc. I was just at St. Anne's last night, 70 men were present, talking on my new book, The New Relativism. So exciting times here in the Diocese of Tulsa, amen? All right. <laughs> All right, so the title of my presentation is A Roadmap to a Life of Vice. Now, you might be thinking in your mind, wait a minute, I thought this conference was all about be holy, the art of Christian living, and you're going to talk to us about how not to be holy (laughs) and how to not succeed in the art of Christian living? And yes, I am, because that is what they asked me to speak on, but it is important To properly understand the truth of virtue and Christian living and succeeding in the art of being human, you must also look at the flip side and see what a failure in the art of human living is about. So, for example, me as a husband, now 20 years married, thanks be to God, August 8th to my wonderful wife Jacqueline, it's not only important for me to know the things that I must do rightly as a husband to succeed in the relationship of marriage. It's also important for me to know what not to do. Amen. amen. Wives, can you say amen? amen. Husbands take no. <laughs> so it's important to talk about vice along with virtue. Now, much of what I'll be articulating and explaining and sharing with you this evening will in many ways overlap with what other speakers will be talking about, especially Dr. D'Ambrosio, when he's talking specifically on virtue tomorrow morning. But I will do my best to not steal his thunder. And hopefully what I say tonight will complement but not take away from what he's speaking on. So let's start with a definition of vice. Vice. And I'm going to basically be pulling from St. Thomas Aquinas. And I promise I'm going to do my best to not be using the million dollar fancy philosophical and theological terms that Aquinas uses. And if I happen to do so, I will do my best to interpret. But I'm pulling from the Prima Secunde, the first part of the second part of his famous work called Summa Theologiae, the Summary of Theology, question 71, article one. So I'm just going to kind of rip from Aquinas here and present to you the best I can what Aquinas has to say about vice and also virtue. So let's begin with what vice is not. Vice is not sin, because sin is that which vice directs us to. Sin is the act, the bad action That we do, vice is going to be the principle abiding in the soul that in virtue of which I commit the sin. You see? So vice directs us to the sin. Vice is not the sin. You can have vicious acts, but the vice directs us to the vicious act. Secondly, vice is also not malice, as Aquinas said. So it's vice that makes us malicious. To be malicious is a consequence of having vice, just like to be good is a consequence of having virtue. So vice is not the sin, not the action, nor is vice the consequence Of having vice in the soul that is being malicious so what is vice well where virtue is an enduring disposition to perform good human acts vice is an enduring disposition to perform human acts that are not good (laughs) simple enough See, all that highfalutin theological stuff is quite simple, right? Virtue, enduring disposition to perform good human acts. Vice, an enduring disposition in the soul by which I perform bad human acts. Now, that's a mouthful. And so we're going to unpack that as we move forward in understanding what vice is. Now, vice is also... Not, it's not only an enduring disposition to perform bad human acts, but vice is also understood, as Aquinas articulates it, as an enduring disposition to omit performing the good acts that are due to me that, that I'm obliged to do. So as a husband, I'm obliged to do certain things for my wife. Amen. Well, married folks out there, right? So there are certain things that I'm obliged to do for my wife as husbands, as a husband, that arises from the bond of marriage that relates me as husband to my beloved, if I repeatedly omit to do those husband activities that are due to my wife across the board, from washing the dishes to other sorts of husband-wife activities. That is also understood to be a vice, an enduring disposition to omit doing the good things that I'm supposed to do fundamentally as a human being and in my case as a husband. So vice is not just about having that enduring disposition to perform bad actions, but also having the enduring disposition to omit doing the good things that I'm supposed to do. Let's begin to unpack that. Carlo, you just defined vice as an enduring disposition. What the heck is a disposition, man? (laughs) Right? Like, what is that? Many of us might be asking that question in our minds. So let's talk about what a disposition is for an act and a disposition to omit an action that we're supposed to be doing. So basically, a disposition is a certain readiness or a tendency an inclination to act in a certain way. So take, for example, a cop. Any law enforcers here? Any cops? Yeah, military even. I'm sure we got some military guys. Thank you all for your service. So take a cop, for example. He's trained in some form of martial arts in order to do his police work effectively and rightly. And that's necessary for his job. So if someone were to throw a punch at him, he has a certain disposition, a certain readiness built into his muscle memory to counter the attack and take down the aggressor and thus succeed in policing, succeed in the work of policing. That's a certain readiness to act. Hopefully that's simple enough to understand. I think that captures the disposition idea correctly. Now, you can also have an inclination, inclination, or a disposition or a readiness to omit a certain act. So take that same cop, right? <laughs> Given that he's a policeman, the act of policing is something that he is bound to do, right? That's something he ought to be doing. So If he constantly omits doing the work of policing and just sitting in his car drinking his coffee and eating the donuts all night and watching the bad guys go by speeding and robbing and murdering and all of that stuff, well, if he does that repeatedly, he's going to develop an enduring disposition or a certain readiness, an ease and a facility to omit doing the work he's supposed to be doing as a cop. So you can see how we can have a disposition or a certain readiness to perform an act or we can have a disposition or a readiness to omit a certain action that's due that we're called to perform given our nature as a human being or even our role as a policeman or myself as a husband. Now, when we're talking about vice and or virtue, it's not just a disposition, a certain readiness, but it's also an enduring disposition. And that's a key element of when we're talking about habits. It's the enduring permanent, not permanent, but long-lasting nature of the disposition or readiness that's going to make it a habit. In the case of vice, we're talking about a bad habit. In the case of virtue, we're talking about a good habit. But it's an enduring quality in the soul. So contrast that with a disposition that I might have that is not enduring. So we're talking about enduring nature of the disposition. Contrast that with a disposition that's not enduring. For example, I might be disposed to buy a new iPhone when I'm sitting on the couch watching TV and I see the ads come on. Right. And all that new iPhone looks pretty sleek and it looks pretty cool. And so I'm 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 brought about to have this certain readiness. Oh, yeah, man, I got I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to go to AT&T and I'm going to go to Apple and I'm going to go buy that new iPhone. So I have a disposition to go buy it. But it's not quite enduring because once I start thinking about all the fees that are associated with that new iPhone and all of the things I'm going to end up having to pay for in order to operate the iPhone, like a new plug, which doesn't come with the new iPhone, and and all of the other accessories, that disposition or readiness to buy the iPhone wanes and goes away. And I realize, huh, I don't need that thing after all. Right. I'll stick with the dumb phone instead of the smartphone. So when we're talking about habits, we're talking about a disposition that's enduring. So getting back to the policeman, the cop who's been trained in martial arts, that readiness to counter the attack of the aggressor is built into his muscle memory. It's enduring. It's not easily lost he would have to neglect his training for quite some time in order to lose that disposition. Now, hear me, we are not saying that he cannot lose it. It's not permanent, but it's difficult to lose because the disposition or the readiness is long lasting. It's enduring because it's trained. It becomes a quality of the soul. Whether we're talking about vice, bad habit, or virtue, good habit. It's enduring disposition. So vice is an enduring disposition to do a human act that's not befitting of our nature. That's to say a disposition to do a bad human act. And for Aquinas and the ancients, going all the way back to Aristotle, a bad human act, we're going to talk more about this in a moment, is simply something that's not fitting for who I am as a human or what I am as a human being. It's just not fitting. It's not befitting for me as a rational animal, not animal alone. Amen. Rational animal. So a bad human act is just simply going to be an action that's not befitting for me as a human being. And we kind of know this, right? When we're sitting at the dinner table and we're trying to raise our kids, we say, boy, your mama didn't raise you in a barn, right? Have proper etiquette at the table. Why? Because, boy, when you eat like a pig, that's not befitting for you as a rational animal. Boy, you an animal because you got to eat. But you ain't just an animal. You're a rational animal. So you need to behave in a way that's befitting for what you are. And we could just go on and on and meditate upon that idea about us as Christians, that we need to behave in a way and live our lives that's befitting of our dignity as Christians. Recognize your dignity, O Christian. And more specifically for us as Catholic Christians to live and behave in a way that's befitting for who we are as Catholics. So this is what we're talking about. So speaking of good human action for virtue or bad human action for vice, the question is, what is a good human act? And how do we decide or determine what a good human act is in the case of virtue or what a bad human action is in the case of vice. So in order to get our minds around that, we need to start with just the notion of the good. We're going to start with the notion of the good and then lead ourselves to understanding the notion of the bad. Because once you understand the the real deal, you can spot the counterfeit, right? I'm told that bankers study a a legit $100 bill in every detail that's there so that when they get a counterfeit $100 bill, they can spot it on the spot. So we want to start with the notion of the good. And once we get a grasp on the notion of the good, then we'll be able to understand the notion of the bad and the life of vice. So here we go, starting with the notion of the good. If I were to draw a triangle with a straight edge on a piece of paper on a stable desk with a pencil, compared to a triangle that I try to draw with a piece of chalk on the back of a seat of a school bus that's hopping up and down, which of the two would be a good triangle? The first one, pretty obvious, right? Now think about that, why is that? Well, because the first one is a better manifestation of what a triangle is, right? Consider another example. Let's say we have a nice, luscious oak tree in the middle of the field with its branches nice and thick, spreading out and roots going deep into the ground. The leaves are green, providing shade. And man, that's one heck of an oak tree, and we marvel at it. I'm thinking of an oak tree back in Lafayette, Louisiana. It's like over 100 years old, and that thing is huge. Compared to an oak tree that's like almost dead, right? Which of the two would we say is a good oak tree? The first one. Why? Because it's a better manifestation of what an oak tree is, right? So notice in these two examples, when we're talking about whether something is good or not, we have to first know what the thing is, right? What something is and its nature is going to determine whether we have a good one or a bad one. Knowing what something is is going to help us determine whether we have a good one or a bad one. When something is flourishing as the kind of thing it is, we say it's a good thing it's a good one of its kind when something is not flourishing as the kind of thing it is we say it's a bad thing of its kind y'all follow me so far that's pretty common sense stuff right see all this highfalutin philosophy stuff in the ivory tower it's just common sense folks that's what it's all about good oak tree bad oak tree good triangle bad triangle the nature of something determines what is a good instance of it. But also follow me here. The nature of something will also determine what's good for it and when it's a good instance of it. So for example, we come to our Oak tree. Given the kind of thing that it is, the Oak tree has certain powers that exists for the sake of certain ends or goals. So the roots of the oak tree. The oak tree has a power of growth for the oak trees roots for the sake of what? For the sake of sinking themselves deep into the ground, to take in nutrients from the soil, to provide for the tree and also stability. That's the goals for the sake of which the power of growth exists in the tree. And whenever the oak tree's roots achieve these ends or goals, when the power of growth is functioning correctly, the oak tree's roots are achieving the ends or the goals for which they were made. We say it's good, right? Like that's good for the tree. Whenever its power of growth is functioning properly and the power of growth in the roots is achieving the goals for which they're made, we say that's good for the oak tree. And notice this, given this order, given this directionality, given this fact that what's good for the oak tree is determined by the powers of the oak tree, and what the powers are for, we're also able to discern what is good for the tree and what is not good for the tree. So for example, anything that's gonna help the tree's roots achieve its goals of providing nutrients for the tree and stability, like fertilizer, light, water, we say it's good. It's good for the tree. Why? because it's helping the tree's power of growth to achieve its end, its goal, its purpose. In contrast, anything that's going to prohibit or impede the tree's f- roots from achieving the ends for which it's for what they were made, we say is bad for the tree. Such as cutting the roots off or poisoning the tree. When we prohibit the tree's roots from achieving their ends or goals or purposes that they have by its natural design and the kind of thing it is, we say it's bad for the tree. You following me so far? Hey, guys, we with an oak tree here. Pretty common sense stuff. Now, this notion of the good, and by way of contrast, this notion of the bad, also applies to us as human beings. Because we are living creatures as well, and we have a certain nature. I spoke of it already. We are not only animals, we are rational animals. We have a certain nature, and it's that nature that determines what is good for us, and the powers that are involved with that nature as rational animal. And so a good instance of a human being, one who will succeed in the art of being human, will be a rational animal who is being a rational animal, flourishing and functioning as the kind of thing it is, namely, rational animal. So, for example, As a rational animal, I have certain powers that exist for something. They exist for some purpose. They have a purpose for which they exist. Take the power of eating. Whenever I engage the power of eating to achieve that for which it's made, namely to nourish me with food, The power of eating is for the sake of taking in food that will actually nourish me. And whenever I achieve food that actually nourishes me, we say that's good for me. Because the power of eating is functioning according to what it is. It's achieving its purpose. It's achieving its end goal of taking in food to actually nourish me. Now contrast that, that if I were to use the power of eating to take in substances that do not actually nourish me, like dirt or glass, which is a disorder legitimately called pica, right? It's a legit disorder where people desire to take in things that are not nourishing, like dirt and glass. We say that is bad for us. Why? Why? Because we are thwarting the power of eating from achieving that for which it's made, namely to take in food and drink, or if we were to eat and actually take in the food, but then actively vomit the food out, that would also not be good for us as a rational animal. Because I would be thwarting the power of eating from achieving that for which it's made. And that would not be good for me as a human being. Now, folks, this line of reasoning applies to all the powers that are involved in us as a human being. You see these eyeballs right here? What they for? To see. He says. I don't know. (laughs) to see but could you imagine all right so if I'm using my eyeballs which I am right now thanks be to God for my contacts I can actually see you folks such beautiful people here in Tulsa I love you folks you're some good people man so I can see you the power of sight is accomplishing or achieving its goal of seeing and so that is Good. Now imagine that if I go outside tomorrow when that sun is blasting hot at 105 degrees tomorrow and I look directly at the sun utilizing my power of sight, do you think that's good for me? No, because I will thereby be thwarting the power of sight from achieving its end goal, which is sight and thereby bringing a defect into the power. And that is not good the power of hearing is for hearing it's actually defined by the purpose for which it's made and so if i hear you i'm my power is achieving its goal and that's good for me but if i were to go up to a blasting loud speaker at a heavy metal concert and put my ear right up to that speaker and use my power of hearing only to damage the power of healing we would say that is Bad. Do you see how what is good for a living creature is determined by the purposes for which its powers exist? What is good for a creature is determined by the kind of thing it is and all of the powers involved with it, even for non living things. That thing ain't living. Amen? But is this a good microphone? Yes. Well, actually, this microphone is the one working right now. (laughs) I don't think that was working. (laughs) Is this a good microphone? Yes. Well, why is it a good microphone? Because it's working. It's achieving the purpose for which it's made. The same principle applies to artifacts and to natural living beings such as you and me. Our nature determines what is good for us. And the powers involved in our nature determines what is good for us. And what is truly good for us is that which is going to perfect us in so far as we are human beings. So the mind and the power of knowing is made for knowledge and truth. The power of the will is made for love. And so whenever I know the truth, I am perfected and flourishing, and thus good as a human being. Whenever I'm loving, I am perfecting my nature and flourishing as a human and thus succeeding in the art of being human. So a good human act is an act that's going to be consistent with, in harmony with, fits within the order of what is good for me as a rational animal. An act that's going to be fitting, befitting of what I am as a rational animal, as a human being. An act that's going to be consistent with what's good for me as a human being. And in contrast, a bad human act is going to be an act that's not consistent with what's good for me. We've already seen hints of that, of eating dirt, eating glass, being lied to would not be good for me as a rational animal, because my mind is made to know truth. And to lie would not be good for me as a rational animal. Because the very power to communicate is for the sake of communicating that which is in the mind. So to assert something as true when I know it is false, i.e. a lie, would be a thwarting of the power of communication and thereby not good. The sexual power is for the sake of unitive love and procreation. So to engage the sexual power while at the same time thwarting either or or both and of the unitive love or procreation at the time, and using the sexual power or even before or even after would not be good for me as a human being. Why? Because I'm thwarting the power, the sexual power. I am impeding the natural power from achieving its natural goal. Now, I realize that's a can of worms right there that I just opened up, and that requires further explanation and articulation. But guess what? I'll be here all day tomorrow, and I'll be more than happy to explain the church's teaching against contraception, okay, and sexual issues. All right. So, in conclusion, a vice is an enduring disposition, in conclusion of vice, not conclusion for the talk yet. So just in case you were getting excited that I was finishing up, that ain't happening just yet, folks, okay? A vice is an enduring disposition, a habit, to perform actions that are not consistent with this order of good within our nature. Not consistent with what's good for us as human beings. And then also, a vice can be an enduring disposition or a habit to omit a human action that is due to me as either a rational animal, human being, or as a husband, or as a policeman, or as a bishop. Right. So that's what vice is. Now, there are a few important catechetical points to consider about vice. So many of us are catechists within the Diocese of Tulsa. And if you're not technically a catechist you're a catechist in some way shape or form as a parent maybe you have got some kids or some grandkids you're a catechist in that sense called by god to transmit our faith and to transmit the truth of human morality and so a few catechetical points are due first of all vice is not worse than sin or a vicious act we often might think of vice as being worse than the act itself but it's not The first reason is because only an act is subject to blame, not the habit. And that's important for pastoral applications as well. Whenever we're having conversations with people and people have ingrained habits, the habit itself for the bad action is not blameworthy. So one is not subject to blame or culpable immediately for the habit itself. The act is culpable. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Carlo, what if they did the sin prior to the habit and they gave them the habit? Aren't they culpable for that? Well, yes, if they never repented. But if they did repent and the habit is still there, well, then they wouldn't be culpable. So one might be culpable for what they did leading up to the habit, but the habit itself is not subject to blame and therefore is not as bad as the sin itself that the vice is directed to. Secondly, a habit is not good or bad except insofar as it inclines us to a good or bad action. So the habit is determined to be good or bad based on whether the activity that the habit's leading me to is good or bad. So notice how vice or virtue is subject to, subordinated to the activities that they're leading me to, right? So vice is subordinate to the vicious act itself and therefore is not as bad as the action. All right, another catechetical point. Vice is not engendered by one sinful act. So just because somebody commits a sin a bad human action, a human action that's not consistent with what's good for us and thereby violating God's design for how we ought to behave as a human being. That's sin. One sin does not engender within the soul the bad habit. And so this leads, well, before we get to that point, just by way of pastoral application, don't freak out and think that you're a vicious person because you've fallen once or twice in a particular sin. Now, please hear me. I am not giving you justification to go and sin. Just because it doesn't create vice within you, that does not thereby justify you to go and engage in the sinful behavior, even if it's a venial sin, I might add. All right. So this leads to the next point. Vice While not engendered by one sinful act, it's engendered through repeated acts against reason. Or repeated activities or human behavior that's not consistent with what's good for us. So repetition is the key for engendering the vice. And then the opposite would be true for virtue, right? Or I should say the same would be true for virtue. Repeated good human actions bring about and engender within the soul virtue. Repeated bad human actions engender, bring about within the soul vice. And then, so, pastoral application, the good news is that we can get out of vice. It is possible to reorder the soul that is disordered by vice. How? Through repeated good human acts, acts that are consistent with what's good for us, living the Christian life. And even if not on the supernatural level, even on the natural level, living the good life of virtue. But these virtues are incorporated into the Christian life is the way by which we get out of vice. So there's hope there is good news for someone who might discover i have vice in my soul i have these bad habits i have this readiness to enduring readiness to commit sin and all of these bad things there is hope so how do i rectify it how do i get out of it i start doing the good things repeatedly so and next thing you know lo and behold The soul will begin to morph and change because the disorder becomes ordered. And it's kind of like when you read in the book, you really don't know where you're at in the book. And then when you look back, you're like, holy cow, I read a lot, right? It's kind of how it is in the life of virtue of moving from vice to virtue. Finally, the last catechetical point is vice is not compatible with sanctifying grace Vice, remember, is an enduring disposition, disposition to perform acts that are ordered to, excuse me, v- virtue is an enduring disposition to perform human acts that would be ordered to God. So sanctifying grace, we call it habitual grace. You ever heard of that? Sanctifying grace is also called habitual grace. Why? Because sanctifying grace is abides in the soul as a quality that's enduring, as opposed to an actual grace where God just gives you a temporary help to enlighten the mind or to inspire the will towards goodness. Those are called actual graces. They're temporary. They're given, but they don't last. Sanctifying grace is habitual grace because Through the sacraments, when we receive it ordinarily, it's a quality that inheres in the soul to rightly order my mind and my heart to God as my supernatural end. That's sanctifying grace. The good habit, right? Vice is an enduring disposition or habit that inclines us away from God to actions that lead us away from God as our supernatural end. So sanctifying grace and vice are incompatible. Now, the good news about that is that in order for us to avoid living a life of vice, the roadmap away from a life of vice is to be constantly dwelling in sanctifying grace to be fostering sanctifying grace in our soul, to live a life of holiness. How do I receive sanctifying grace? Well, ordinarily, you receive it through the sacrament. So initially through baptism, and if it's still there, you foster it and you help it grow by receiving our blessed Lord in holy communion. And whenever you sin, if you destroy it through mortal sin, you go get spiritually resurrected in the sacrament of reconciliation. And if you don't destroy it through mortal sin, but only weaken it through venial sin, then you still go to the sacrament of reconciliation to enhance it to strengthen it, to increase it. And by pursuing holiness as a Christian, and in particular as a Catholic Christian, we avoid the life of vice. Supporting evidence from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves. Now, what he means by homosexuals there is not someone simply who has a disordered attraction to a member of the same sex, but someone who is engaging in same-sex sexual activity. Important point to make there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Notice, you were washed. That's a reference to baptism. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So St. Paul teaches us that through baptism, these Corinthians were turned away from a life of vice, were reordered within their soul and sanctified. That means rightly ordered to God as their supernatural end. I'll be a son of a gun. You know, I'm looking at the time and I'm realizing I got a lot left to go and only a little time left. And I thought by uh, for sure I would not go this far. So let's see what I can do, because this is the first time I presented this information before. So bear with me. All right, so now we get to the capital vices. So now that we know what vice is and certain catechetical points about vice, the question becomes what are some of these vices that we need to be aware of? There are seven that the tradition has identified as capital coming from Latin "caput" or head. That is to say these are principal vices in virtue of which or from which other vices can flow. That's why they're called capital vices. And these capital vices, these capital bad habits, are connected and lead us to capital sins, the actual activities that are sinful and considered capital. Now, we differentiate. It's important that we know this. We differentiate the vices in terms of the different fundamental goods of man. So some goods are pursued. Some goods are avoided or we're sad about certain goods. So some goods pursued would be a good of the soul, a good of the body, or the, some good outside of me that I'm seeking to acquire. But then you also have some goods avoided or I'm sad about maybe my own good or your good. So let's think through this. Let's look at some goods, the goods pursued one of which would be the good of the soul, namely excellence, which merits honor, praise, and glory. When one repeatedly seeks this good of the soul, excellence, but in a disordered way, contrary to reason, one is doing so in virtue of the vice of vainglory or pride. So here's an example. If I go and give alms, but only to be seen by others. Oh, look how holy Carlo is. Oh my good, he's such a holy guy. I want to be around him. Let me touch his holy, I want to get that holiness. If that's why I'm giving alms, I'm seeking an excellence of soul, because giving alms is an excellence of soul that would merit legitimately praise, glory, and honor. But if I do so in a disordered way, that's vainglory, that's pride. St. Paul has something to say about this. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. So Paul says that's a no-no. What about the good of the body? Well, the good of the body can be either for the individual person or for the species, as Aquinas articulates it. So whenever we're looking at the good of the body for the individual, whenever I pursue a good of the body in a disordered way, we call that the vice. It's in virtue of the vice of gluttony. So here is the mayor from a cartoon called the Cloudy Cloudy Chance of Meatballs, right? And he starts out as a little bitty man, but then, of course, food starts falling from the sky, and he just devours everything in sight, and he now develops the vice of gluttony. So he sins in gluttony in virtue of the vice of gluttony. Proverbs 23 has something to say about this. Be not among wine wine bibbers or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. So that's pursuing a good of the body for the individual. What about pursuing the good of the body for the species? That is, that sort of activity that brings about a good of the body, namely pleasure, that propagates the human species. That sort of behavior. Well, whenever we pursue that behavior in a disordered or an inordinate way, in a bad way... That's in virtue of the vice of lust. Now, I'm not going to give you a picture for that vice because we're going to keep it G-rated here, okay? St. John has something to say about this in 1 John 2.16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So St. John identifies this vice, the lust of the flesh, Now, what about a good that's external to me? Whenever I pursue a good external to me, some material good like riches or money or wealth, and I do so in a disordered way, contrary to reason, a bad way, then that's in virtue of the vice of covetousness, greed, or avarice. Avarice coming from the Latin word avarus, which means greedy. So the lust of the eyes, right? seeing the money, desiring the money, but desiring it in an unhealthy way to where I'm willing to do bad things to acquire that good. That would be coming about in virtue of the vice of greed. St. John also in 1 John 2.16 talks about the lust of the eyes. Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat and so she took of it. The lust of the eyes, desiring a good outside of herself but contrary to God's will, because God said, No, no. God said, Don't eat. She saw that it was good and she partake, she partook. First Timothy 6:10, St. Paul hits the nail on the head, for the love of money is the root of all evils through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. And the love of money he's talking about, there is a disordered love or desire of money. Now, what about avoiding goods? Avoiding goods can be on account of some evil associated with it. We we can talk about either our own good or the good of others. So whenever I avoid pursuing my own good or I'm sad about what's really good for me, I'm not caring about it, I'm indifferent about it, that's in virtue of the vice called sloth or acedia. So here's an example of that. I found this a few minutes ago of in a church, a big screen watching the soccer game in the context of worship. Now, why would I put that for a CD? Because notice that these folks do not care about what is truly rightfully highest good for them. They have a certain revulsion against what is truly good for them. And consequently, they focus on what is less good. And they're distracted from what is truly good. And that's the consequence of Ossidia. That's the consequence of vice, where we no longer pursue what is really good for us. We only pursue the things that will sell us short. And this, I am convinced, is the true crisis of our age, of people just not caring about the true, the good, and the beautiful. Just not caring about it. Why? Because they care more about the screen, about the likes, about the views, and things of lesser importance. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, uh, excuse me, Colossians 3, 1 through 2, St. Paul has something to say about this. Always keep our eyes focused on the heavenly things, right? Do not be focusing on the things of earth, but rather focus on the things above. So St. Paul is calling us to engage and constant behavior that gets us out of the vice of sloth or, or assidia by focusing on the heavenly things, focusing on divine things. And whenever we have to focus on earthly things, guys, like you got to go to work to put bread on the table. I got five of those mouths I got to feed, plus my wife, that's a sixth one, plus myself, that's the seventh one. So we got to be concerned about the things of the earth. But whenever we must concern ourselves about the things of the earth, we ought to order them properly toward the heavenly things and the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Finally, what about avoiding the good of another? If I'm sad about your good or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm mad over the fact that you achieved some good. Whenever that is done without an uprising, against the individual, we call that the vice of envy. It's done in virtue of the vice of envy. I am sad about the good that you acquire. I'm mad about the fact that you got some good that I didn't. And whenever I'm mad about that without attacking you for it, that's in virtue of the vice of envy. Guys, I don't know about y'all, but man, I've had to work on this one. And I'll give you an example, my boy here, he's not here tonight, but my colleague and good friend Trent Horn, y'all gonna listen to him tomorrow, excellent apologist. That boy has written like 12 books. He writes a book every six months, and I'm only on my sixth one, and I always have to be looking at the goods that he achieves with those books he writes. I hope I'm not envious of his goods. I rejoice in his good, right? But the bottom line is that if I, am, if I am mad or angered or sad over the good that you possess without an uprising against you, that's in virtue of envy. But when I am mad over, that would be the meme for envy, okay? I'm mad that Trinhorn won the prize and got all the books. okay. <laughs> Moving on. But when when I am mad or sad over the good that you have with an uprising against you, when I come to attack you for it, that's in virtue of the vice of anger or wrath. And of course, Cain and Abel is an excellent example of that. When Cain is mad over the good that Abel has and being pleased with Yahweh, with Almighty God for the sacrifice he offered, he's mad at that good. He's mad at that pleasing relationship with God. And so what does he do? He attacks him for it. He he rises up against him. And that's in virtue of the vice of anger or wrath. Ephesians 4, 26, St. Paul writes, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You can have a righteous anger, and anger without sin, but we have to be very careful because there can be sinful anger, unrighteous anger, where I am angered in a disordered way. And folks, I wish we could spend more time in unpacking this more, making more applications to our everyday life circumstances, but at least you have the principles, at least you have the content here that you can be, at least begin to meditate on and think about and measure up against in your own life to see if I'm l- playing with vice, if I'm, I'm kind of getting close to it, or if I'm seeing it in others for the sake of trying to help them come out of a life of vice, that's what this is for. Finally, the roadmap to a life of virtue. Avoiding a life of vice. Brothers and sisters, it's all about living the good life do good and avoid evil. It's as simple as that. St. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 11, he that would love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do what is right. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord or upon the righteous, upon the virtuous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. So the life of virtue is doing good, avoiding evil. And so all of these capital vices can be countered by, by virtues, gluttony countered by temperance, a due moderation of the pleasures of the body, seeking and indulging in. Envy countered by brotherly love rather than being mad over the good that you have. I rejoice in your good just as if it were my good. That's true brotherly love. That's what love is all about, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us. Wrath is countered by meekness and patience. Lust by chastity. What is chastity? We hear that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Chastity, chastity, chastity. What is chastity? It's basically just governing the sexual powers in a way that's consistent with what's good for us. Utilizing the sexual powers in a way that's consistent with what they're for. Unitive love and procreation. Whenever we repeatedly utilize our sexual powers in a way that's consistent with what's befitting for them, given the kinds of things they are and given what we are as a human being, that's in virtue of the the virtue of chastity, which counters lust. Humility counters pride. Diligence counters sloth. And I might say diligence with regard to pursuing what is good and what is most good and being rejoicing over it. The idea of magnanimity, right? Pursuing greatness in accord with God's plan. And finally, greed countered by generosity. So my friends, we have articulated a roadmap of a life of vice for the sake of coming to an awareness of the path that we need to avoid and inspiring, hopefully within us, a desire to live a life of virtue, which our speakers for tomorrow will unpack more, particularly Dr. D'Ambrosio, where he will give you a presentation on a life of virtue to expound for you in more detail and probably just better than what I can do here, right? (laughs) The art of Christian living. Now, one last note. You can talk about the art of human living, which is the natural level. But we're also going to be talking about the art of Christian living, which is the supernatural level. And that grace builds on and perfects that nature. So we got to have both, because functioning properly as a good human being is a necessary condition for functioning properly as a Christian. But it's not sufficient, because guess what, folks? There's more to the story than just the natural level. It's called grace. It's called Jesus Christ. Amen? And conformity of mind and heart to the mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the heart of the art of Christian living. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. God bless you all. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma.